stay hungry, stay foolish. Welcome back for part four of this magnificent series. And I'm so grateful to our guests, the author of Scale, Jeffrey West. Welcome back to the show. Uh, thanks, Aiden. Good to be back. And I'm looking forward to a continuation of our conversation. It's been magnificent. And I was telling you about the feedback we've had. You've had comments yourself. I'd have comments LinkedIn through the Santa Fe LinkedIn page as well. There's been multiple comments. And we're going to come to a few of those hopefully today as well to answer some of the queries that people had, which is just fantastic to get that level of engagement. So tip of the hat to you, sir, for that as well, for, for stimulating that type of thought. And for me as well, I've, I've learned so, so much. But I thought we'd dive a little bit deeper into a couple of things before we wanted to talk about the planet today. Today's our finale episode. And there was a couple of things you mentioned earlier on, I was going through the episodes, and I was making sure we didn't leave any stone unturned. But we've left many, many stones unturned in the book. And you really have to read this book, really, it's it's a magnificent piece of work. And it's so thought stimulating, and it's absolutely magnificent. But I thought we'd talk about Detroit, because you mentioned Detroit, and Detroit and the resilience of cities, but you were talking about the death of the city, and the rebirth of those cities as well. And that serves as a nice segue to then get onto the planet about the death of potential death of a planet, but also the resilience of those planets. So maybe over to you to talk about this about Detroit, the birth and death and rebirth of this city. Well, thanks. Uh, thanks, Aiden. And uh, thank you for those embarrassingly flattering <laughs> comments. <laughs> I'm not sure I can live up to them at all. But uh, uh, especially now we're talking about something like uh, the resilience of cities and uh, Detroit in particular, as an example. Um, uh, this is definitely work in progress. And indeed, much of what we're going to talk about today, I suspect, will be of this nature, that it's not quite complete. Um, uh, it is it is touched on in the book for sure, but um, it's uh, it's a very challenging topic altogether. More generally, the whole question of robustness and resilience and so on, so on of any any system. Um, so uh, you know, Detroit is a fantastic example of a city that was enormously successful, uh, and of course, one of the great uh, American success stories. Uh, 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 driven uh, by the invention of the automobile and becoming the, effectively for a long period the global center of the automobile industry, um, and um, uh, and it thrived, of course, because of that. Um, and uh, and then then we're all very familiar, I'm sure, um, even those in the um, you know in Europe, in the United Kingdom, and Ireland that uh, Detroit went through this very bad period uh, beginning 20 odd 30 years ago. Uh, and uh, it, it became, well, in cancer, the word used the word necrotic, um, namely, the, the, the center basically died effectively. And it had, you know, that great architecture, great, uh, great museum, the Detroit Symphony used to be one of the great symphonies, I think it still is a good symphony. Um, but all of that started to decay badly, and it decayed badly uh, because of the um, uh, decline, uh, not so much of the automobile industry, but the decline of 
um, or, or, or the, the, the lack of foresight of the American automobile industry and its arrogance that uh, despite the threats, the obvious threats uh, from Europe and most particularly of Japan, the rise of Toyota and Nissan and so forth, um, they simply didn't get the message that uh, there was the, that the, the era of the big automobile with big V8 engines and the muscle cars and all of that, all of which, you know, were, were the symbol in a certain sense of 1950s, 19, even early 60s America, um, was no longer attractive, certainly on the global market, but even in the American market as uh, the beginnings of consciousness of uh, the, the effects on the environment and uh, the sort of waste that was implicit in these, the, the sort of conspicuous consumption uh, that had developed. And um, there was just this refusal to, um, uh, to adapt. And um, it's not particular to the automobile industry. I mean, it's the, it, to, to varying degrees, it's the history of large companies. Um, it's, you know, that, uh, you know, one of the pieces of work that we did and we haven't discussed in detail was our work on developing a science of companies. And um, uh, one of the pieces of work that we did was look at the mortality of companies. And one of the things that surprised us uh, was that when we looked at uh, the US publicly traded companies, and the only data we had was from about 1960 up to roughly the present, we discovered that um, the expected lifespan of sort of the average American publicly traded company, that means a company that's already been successful enough to post on, become public, post on the stock exchange and so on and so forth, was 10 years. So if you have such a company, if you, if you live, so to speak, for more than 10 years, you're doing pretty well, which was sort of a, you know, it surprised a lot of people, a lot of people, even a lot of people in the industry, so to speak. So it got, you know, a fair amount of publicity. Um, but, um, and, and the reason for that, uh, of course, multitudinous, and by the way, death, and, and this applies also to cities, you have to be careful of what you use, how you use that word. And, you know, the death of Detroit was used, or the death of New Orleans in this country. Uh, but the, the death of a company meant, in the, by definition, um, well, birth meant they posted on the stock exchange, and death meant they stopped posting <laughs> sales. There's no more, that's it. Now, that could be because they went bankrupt or liquidated, but it turns out, and that, this was a surprise to, to, to uh, many of us that were working on this because we're not involved, you know, we're not people, that's not been our uh, area of expertise in the past, was that most companies disappear, die in quotes, because of mergers and acquisitions. So uh, it's sort of a curious difference, obviously, than death biologically. Um, and you have to be careful about that. On the other hand, it turned out if you looked at all the statistics and the 
and the growth curves and so on. Actually, you couldn't tell the difference if you just looked at the graphs, whether, you know, if you divide it into those that have died because of bankruptcy, those that have died because of mergers and acquisitions, look the same. And the same 10 years persisted. So there's an underlying dynamic that is somehow common. And that underlying dynamic is um, to do with lack of adaptation, to put it in simple terms. I'm going to tr try to keep this brief. Uh, lack of adaptation um, as the, you know, so so the, the sort of to, to encapsulate the life history of a company, it starts small, of course. It has lots of ideas, you know, the image of, you know, Bill Gates and his friends gathering in the garage of someone's house, actually in Albuquerque here originally, that's where it started, ironically. Uh, and, uh, you know, these ideas developing. So when they form a company, they have lots of ideas, lots of products in quote, whatever they are. And then they eventually, you know, they go into the market and then they go public. And of course, what happens is at the beginning, you don't sort of care too much about the formality of the company. You know, you don't you don't have a large bureaucracy or administration. In fact, you do it yourself to some extent, probably. Um, and you have this this sort of spectrum of of ideas and products. And of course, then you enter the market, and the market, the response from the market determines what products you're going to push, what ones you say, shit, that was such a good idea. But, you know, if it's not selling and no one's responding, we just have to drop it. And we now, and, and, you know, we have to drop this and we have to in, instead promote word, which may not be very good, but that's what people are responding to and so on. I mean, so, um, so in a sense, what happens to a company uh, is twofold, typically, is that, and I'm going to come to cities because there's a parallel in here. Um, is that the, the company is could be thought of as multidimensional to begin with, because lots of ideas and, and, and somewhat informal. And then as it develops, uh, the, it, it goes from being multidimensional to becoming lower dimensional, and in some cases, effectively unidimensional. And at the same time, of course, as it's growing, and that dimensionality being response, obviously, to the market forces. Now, at the same time, as it's becoming more and more successful, it has to become more and more bureaucratized, properly administered. You have to have, uh, you know, uh, you have to obey all the tax laws. You have to make sure that the offices are clean, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. You have to have, make sure that the workforce is uh, coming on time and leaving on all these various constraints and restrictions, and you form a bureaucracy and so on. And um, the bigger you are, the bigger the bureaucracy, and and uh, the dimensionality is getting lower. And typically, innovation, certainly innovation per capita, is systematically decreasing. <laughs> bureaucracy per capita is systematically increasing. And so you get you end up with this great big battleship, quite rigid and extremely difficult to change and to adapt. And that often is, you know, in a sort of coarse-grained, almost cartoon version, the history of many companies. And uh, it takes some extraordinary leadership or extraordinary insight 
um, to be able to overcome those forces. And it's obvious that most, the vast majority of companies are unable to do that because they all die within 10 years, quote, and die even, even, and, and when you think about mergers and acquisitions, many of those are because some of those forces are at work and they need to do that, to, to move on. They need to, to, to be bought up or to merge with some other company and so on. So, you know, we can go into much greater detail in this, but let's leave it at that and say that that's the dynamic at work. And to put it in slightly different language is that companies become less and less diverse. They may start out quite diverse, diverse in terms of ideas, different kinds of um, um, uh, facilities, different kinds of um, ways of doing things and so on. But gradually, you know, it, it all starts to solidify and it's, uh, it becomes the culture of the company. Um, and that can be very powerful uh, but it's, uh, and, and lead to its success, but it also sows the seeds for its demise. So the automobile companies are a great example of that. And, um, you know, and the automobile industry is a great example because I'm, you know, I don't know the numbers now, but if you go back to, you know, 1910 or 1920 in the United States, I don't know, there were probably a hundred automobile companies actually, you know, of which several were more dominant. And eventually now there's, you know, at best three in this country. Well, of course, there's the Japanese ones that have started building ones here, but there's three. So the industry has done that. But Detroit, which was the capital of the American automobile industry, of course, those companies became ossified. The Detroit as a city became totally dependent upon the automobile industry, so that even the subsidiary companies in around Detroit necessarily were subservient, if you like, serving, in fact, the automobile industry to varying degrees. So that that's that worked for a long time, was successful. But you know, when the externalities changed and the threat of smaller cars, uh, more efficient cars, more, I don't know, more sporty cars, and so on became, uh, you know, that when, when, when uh, styles and needs and desires changed very hard for this industry to adapt. It, and, and it's sort of interesting in a way, because, you know, from the outside, you think, shit, it's sort of obvious. And it was obvious. You know, why don't they just change? Well, there's this whole structure has become, as I say, solidified, extremely difficult. And, and to put it in totally cartoon terms, these companies often become the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is the company. And the other stuff is actually secondary to it. And, you know, one of the big questions and one that we're actually working on is maybe that's just the way it has to be you know, that there is a kind of organic dynamic that inevitably leads to that. And it's that, what we talked about in the first episode, maybe a bit in the second, it's the analog of entropy in the system. The entropy is sort of eating up the system. And just as it eats up you and me, and eventually we die, so it is with these companies. So it's a, it's probably more than just a metaphor. It's, it's probably actually a mechanism. 
So that's true of companies. Can I they, can I add uh, something, Jeffrey? And I don't want to disturb your flow, but allow you get a glass sure. of water before we move on to cities, because I feel you were just about to go there. Exactly, I was. I <laughs> we're in sync, team. brother. We're in sync. And uh, I I found another beautiful metaphor in your work because when you talked about metabolic energy and the distribution of energy between maintenance and growth, and how then a tumor steals energy, if you want to put it that way, from the growth of the organism. I thought, well, that's kind of what happens in organizations at the start. Most of the growth, most of the metabolic energy is in growth and in idea formation and getting ideas to market, etc. But then as entropy creeps into the system in the form of bureaucracy, most of the energy is redirected towards maintenance, which is bureaucracy That's and right. keeping my job and the status quo and make sure yeah. I have the corner office. And in that grows a cancer within an organization, a, a, a tumorous growths all over the place. And in time, those become a network of growth and all the energy is sapped away from the vitality of the organization. And ultimately, it becomes a necrotic organization. <laughs> yes. So um, I, I refrain from using that language only because that paints a highly, and it's true, what you describe is actually a very good description. It, it obviously carries with it a pejorative message. And the, so, <laughs> and the reason I shy away from it is, is the thing I said just a few minutes ago, um, maybe this is inevitable. That is, maybe you just have to accept that's the way companies are that's the nature of what a company is and sure maybe you know you can have some that are surely i said the the lifetime the expected lifetime of a company on the average is about 10 years which means you know if you take a cohort the, the you know half of them will be dead at 10 years roughly speaking and half may live for 20 years but there are companies, as you well know, that will go on for 50, 100, 200, 300, even 400 years. Uh, they tend to be in very special niches or have had very special histories or very special leadership and so on. But generally, they don't. But it may be that that's sort of an inevitable dynamic, going back to what you said. So I'm a little bit reluctant in terms of being a scientist putting those terms on it because and 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 what you one needs to do is to understand what that dynamic is because another way of saying it uh, which is not a scientific way is that my view became actually who cares about companies i mean we don't care about companies we care about people and products and so you know um, maybe it's good maybe ibm should have died i mean it did die and we should have just said RIP, um, you know, uh, TWA died and uh, so on and so forth, you know, let them die. Because it, because just like it's good that I'm going to die and eventually <clears throat> you're going to die, new stuff comes along. That's the whole fantastic phenomenon of evolution and natural selection is that it allows new things to come, new innovations, new ideas. And as Darwin recognized from the very beginnings of his thinking about this, death is a crucial aspect of evolution because it allows for greater innovation. And by the way, just a total side tangential comment on that, he came to that when he was grieving 
over the death of his daughter, Anna, who died when she was about 12 years old. And it was in some sense his favorite daughter. And he had eight children, I think it was, maybe 10 children, I forget. And he was grieving over it. And, and he lost faith. He stopped being a Christian after that. But he also thought about it a great deal as to what it meant. What was the meaning of that? What was the, why should someone of that age die? And why should we die? And he did. He re- that fed into his, these ideas that uh, death was an integral part of, of natural selection and, in a, and the bringing out of new ideas. So we shouldn't care. We should care about the people. As, you know, we should make sure that people have, you know, uh, well cared for, well cared for, but also that it allows, you know, look, I've often said as a joke, if IBM had not effectively died, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and uh, maybe uh, Larry Page would have ended up working for IBM. And we would never have heard of them, you know. And none of that, you know, so maybe we we wouldn't have had, you know, uh, Microsoft and Google and so forth. I love that because I, I often think of forest fires. The forest fire unlocks the seeds on some trees. They need the fire in order to melt the wax to release the seed. And I, I just wanted to butt in to quote you because there's a beautiful passage and one of the beautiful things from eclectic reading is you you gather such beautiful quotes and you wrote a beautiful thing about death you said death is an essential feature of life indeed implicitly implicitly it is an, an essential feature of the theory of evolution a necessary component of the evolutionary process is that individuals eventually die so that their offspring can propagate new combinations of genes that eventually lead to adaptation by natural selection of new traits and new variations leading to the diversity of the species. We must all die so that we can blossom, explore, adapt and evolve. Beautiful, beautiful, Jeffrey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'd forgotten that. <laughs> Much better said in my book than I said it a moment ago. But um, <clears throat> but let's make that a segue to cities because it's sort of, in fact, the, the thing that sort of got me excited about doing this work in the beginning was I asked myself a question uh, that began to intrigue me. Why is it that companies die, most companies, I didn't realize that essentially all companies die, but uh, but, uh, that most companies sort of disappear, let's put it that way, yet cities persist, and they're both sort of social organizations of human beings. What is it that makes them different? And and Detroit, again, is a good example. And so, uh, but let's talk more generally first. So the great, in a nutshell, the reason a city thrives is because it isn't a company, it's one way of saying it. That is, it is not a top-down organization that has to produce a product and is quite so sensitive to market forces. It has many other functionalities, obviously. And um, it, it, the, the administration of a city is more sort of just to make sure things run. I mean, that's supposedly, and to facilitate, and here's the crucial thing, going back to things I talked about in an earlier episode, to facilitate more and more social interactions, to create an atmosphere of uh, where people can gather, come together easily, and also to encourage 
implicitly and sometimes explicitly entrepreneurship in its most general sense. And integral to that is diversity. Great cities not only have places that facilitate social interaction, like I'd said before, you know, parks and squares and lecture halls and offices and sports stadiums and some theaters, uh, bringing people together. But um, it also is extremely, uh, I, I was going to use the word tolerant. In fact, in many cases, it encourages, whether it thinks about it or not, diversity. I mean, um, you know, if you go to New York is a marvelous example of all of these. And, you know, you go to New York, one of the things that always, you know, amuses people over the years about New York, you go to New York, there's all these crazy people walking around, you know, and uh, the last time I was there, I, I was on Fifth Avenue, and some, some fellow got into the middle of the street, where the traffic was going back and forth, and singing at the top of his voice. And the cars were going by and just, and the cops were there not doing anything and just sort of everybody was, and I thought, this is exactly what makes New York a great city. And, you know, it's, it's terrible that to say that it has lots of homeless people now and so on, but there are these people that are sort of borderline and uh, uh, so on, on, on the edge. And I'm not saying that that's good of itself, but what that represents is an extraordinary boundary way out there that we can all feel we can move into, we can move towards, and we can do crazy things within our own highly limited context. So you can think, you can be in your thing, well, shit, maybe I can put on that play, or maybe I should write this book because maybe I can go down there and there's an agent, uh, you know, in uh, and then maybe I can convince them to do something or whatever, or I'm going to open this store because, you know, it somehow engenders a culture of openness and, you know, uh, of doing. And uh, as I use the word entrepreneurship in its ex very general sense, I don't just mean businesses, but personal entrepreneurship kind of thing. And cities are great at that. Now you go to a company generically speaking and generally speaking, you see exactly the opposite. And indeed, that's why I go to what I said before, and, and to a large degree, that's necessary. People really have to do certain jobs, have to be done. I mean, if you're in a fact, I mean, take the extreme, a factory, you can't have people just sort of deciding, well, I don't feel like working on this machine now, screw it, you know, or whatever. You know, you do have this, this, these huge constraints. Damn you, Taylor. Damn you. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, on the other hand, you know, there needs to be in a company, a part of it, that has the analog to allowing crazy people, so to speak, to walk the hallways and talk to people and say, what about this? What about that? Why don't we do this? Pushing back and so on. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a crucial part. So even if you go to Google, um, you know, which which like to present itself as an image of, you know, everything's open and uh, people can think what they like. Well, of course, that was not true. And it's become more and more rigid over the years as it's had to, whether it likes it or not, uh, as it's become a, a major company. Um, so, um, you know, this is a, a huge issue for companies. And one of the things that has killed many companies 
is that, um, and, and I think Detroit was a good example of this again, was that, uh, you know, Ford Motor Company used to have, um, and, I, uh, as did I, and IBM was one of the great examples of this, great research. I mean, IBM had truly great research. I mean, uh, but Ford also had very good research. And of course, what happens is when going gets tough, when the markets change, and you know, profits aren't what they should be, and uh, the shareholders are yelling and screaming, maybe, um, you start cutting back. And one of the first things you tend to cut back on is research and development. You know, because you say, well, you know, this is not the productive part of the company. So we're cut back on that. And when things get good, we're rehired. And, um, you know, this is a fatal flaw because you can kill ideas and innovation in one minute, let alone one week, by firing a bunch of people. But to build it up again takes years. So it's incredibly short-sighted, and you need to think about that kind of thing carefully. And these companies, many of these companies, just did it because it was the easy thing to do, and they suffered long-term from it. So it again goes back to this thing that um, politics and companies tend to be short-sighted, tend to be, you know, the next two to three years is what we're thinking about. They tend not to think in 10, 20, 50 years. Cities, by their very nature, are persistent. And part of that is a little bit to do with... Um, uh, the fact that, um, you know, even though, so, let me just give an example, London has changed a great deal since I was a boy. But when I go there, it's still London, and it looks like London. I mean, oh, there's all those stupid tall buildings because they want to think that they're powerful and all the rest. I mean, uh, you know, it's it's some image they're trying to create. But actually, London, so the real London is still very much London, um, and you recognize it. And Dublin, the same thing. I mean, you go to Dublin, it's not quite the way I saw. I mean, I saw Dublin first in 1962, I think it was. Yes, 1962. And the last time I saw it was already 10, 15 years ago. But it had, superficially, especially in the center, that it had changed, obviously. But, you know, fundamentally, it was the same. You didn't, I mean, the, 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 the charming things are missing, the little teeny stores out of, you know, <laughs> we're, we're not quite as prevalent and so on. But, you know, fundamentally the same. So there's great persistence. It has a long persistence time in terms of its physicality, and that plays a very important role, I think. But, but the crucial thing is that cities, great cities, engender diversity, and Detroit suffered terribly for not – and diverse, I should have clarified at the beginning – uh, I, 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 I mean diversity both in its very general sense, but in particular, I mean in terms of its jobs, employment, uh, businesses, and so on. And in more modern times, of course, in terms of uh, questions of um, ethnicity and so on plays a role. But in fact, you know, I may be wrong in this, I think that plays a secondary role to the to the fundamental thing of having diversity of jobs and businesses and so on. Um, the, 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 the diversity of, of ethnicity, people, race, ideas is also important. It brings new 
new ways of looking at things. It makes people um, rethink often what their basic assumptions are. And of course, that leads, that has a downside to it, the dark side to it, because it leads to un, sometimes resentment and unrest and all the other things we're dealing with. So, but, um, but, but so does the other, by the way. I mean, you know, changing, you know, expanding businesses, changing, um, you know, uh, <laughs> changing Manchester from a small town to, you know, the center of, a, um, uh, of the cotton industry uh, caused social unrest in spades. I mean, my God, the whole 19th century is dominated in some ways. You could look through the eyes of social unrest and the rise of trade unions and so on. But all that was great. You know, so that's the great thing about cities. They're churning all the time. They're, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. And that's what makes suburbs so boring, by the way, because they don't do that. I mean, they're not, you know, very nice to live in and so on. But the, um, but the, the, the city as, a, as an organism has this fantastic quality, a great city of churning and creating ideas. And Detroit is a, an example of not eventually not doing that. I wanted to introduce a couple of things before you go onto the planet and maybe also use it as an opportunity because there was a couple of comments on LinkedIn as I, I shared with you from people and, and they were to do with cities. So we'll do that because then otherwise it'll just be a Q&A session. And uh, you know from doing keynotes, doing that at the end is, is can be just a bit challenging sometimes. So I'll, I'll mix them into our conversation. But I wanted to share with you as you know, in my own book, I, I quote a little bit about the lifespans of companies receding. So they're becoming less and less. And we've talked about that uh, at length. But also, I wanted to share something that Jeff Bezos said, and <laughs> it has an interesting backstory, because he said in an all hands meeting in May 2020, when one of his colleagues in Amazon asked, in front of everyone, they're like, what will Amazon do to make sure they're not the next Sears and go bankrupt in the retail apocalypse? And he said, Amazon is not too big to fail. In fact, Amazon will fail and go bankrupt someday. If you look at large corporations, they only last 30 years, their lifespans are about 30 years, but they used to be 100 years. And this is really important. But it has a backstory. And perhaps I'll let you unpack what that backstory is before I proceed. <laughs> Well, uh, Bezo I, I, I don't know, uh, Jeff Bezos, I've met on two or three occasions, maybe more, uh, even had dinner with him. But uh, he, uh, and he got that, uh, he got that, I will call it statistic, anyway, that thought from uh, listening to my talks and talking about it and so on. And, and by the way, um, whereas on the one hand, I'm disappointed he didn't credit me when he said that. I, I, and I didn't in my book. I'm sorry. Yeah, now I, I am. Though. No, but there's no reason you would know. Most, but, but, but people won't know. And I'm sure he will get all the credit. But I, I'm disappointed a little bit that he didn't credit me. Um, on the other hand, I'm delighted that he said it. And I'm particularly delighted that he is one of the few major leaders that paid attention to that and got it. And I, without naming names, I can tell you, I have talked to two or three others at that level, that is CEOs, founders of 
major companies that we all know of who um, either shrug their shoulders or simply disagree, think that their company, one particular one, who shall be nameless, will live forever. And in fact, the curious thing in that particular case was in saying that, it was like me saying to you something about your children not living, you know, that they will eventually die. I mean, it was really, it was taken personally in that sense, but it really shocked me. It shocked me at the yeah. time. But, but so Jeff, you know, Bezos, um, I have to give him great credit, obviously, that, um, you know, he took it seriously. And he's, he, uh, you know, he obviously thought enough about it to say it uh, publicly. And, and in particular, you know, to, to his uh, company employees, which is extraordinary. It fits into their their ethos of always day one, you know, and, and for me, all always day one is put all your energy into that growth phase, not into the maintenance phase. Yeah, you know, so I, I think that that he is terrific, actually, I'm, uh, I must say, I've been very impressed with what he's done, and so on. And, uh, you know, I'm, uh, and I don't know who knows where Amazon will go. But it's, it's, I mean, Amazon, I want to, I mean, they, they get a, they often get a, um, a lot of crap for the way they've treated some of their employees and the way they're dealing with this unionization and so on. And uh, I'm, I'm sympathetic to the criticisms in many instances. But um, he has done something amazing, actually. And uh, <clears throat> this business model and this, you know, especially during the pandemic, was a savior for many of us. And so, you know, we have to respect that. But where it will go, who knows? I mean, there's there's going to be challenges to it. And the mar again, markets will change. And he knows that. And he may they may not be agile enough, adaptable enough to actually resist it. The one thing is when we talk about diversification of business models, he's not only diversified business models, he's diversified businesses. So there's revenue streams coming from multiple sources, which is so, so important. But let, let's, I'll squeeze in a question here, a comment that came from uh, David Perkins on, on LinkedIn. And he said, of cities and buildings, I love the idea that buildings and infrastructure are mere props for the real city, which is comprised of people and socioeconomic interactions. And the question here is twofold, how what might we visualize and better understand this real city instead, right? So that was one comment. And then he went on, I said, David, is it all right to share this on the show and ask Jeffrey? And he said, please do. He said, specifically, I'm thinking about the fractal nature and flows of information and energy or resources over these socioeconomic networks, how these flows might reflect socioeconomic health and stability, and how information technologies are continually establishing newer socioeconomic pathways independent of physical infrastructure and geography, what seem to have historically been localized arterial or branching networks are becoming increasingly global or webbed or micellial in nature. And this would appear to have significant implications regarding the distribution of people and resources, as well as the potential for social conflict associated with this at least proportional shift in socioeconomic architecture. I'm interested in his your thoughts on this and how this might be studied, modeled or observed from a practical standpoint. And he says in commas here in, bra in brackets, 
and I'd gladly volunteer if there's any opportunities to do so. And he said, thanks for passing it on and cheers to you, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, that, of course, requ- I mean, to really answer that. <laughs> another episode. <laughs> another episode. <laughs> Probably. But it's a very tough question. I mean, he's asked some really tough questions there, um, especially that last whole thing. And, uh, and we first have to establish whether the premise is right, by the way. Is it really true that there's these changes? You know, there's two major changes that have happened, really, I would say, just off the top of my head. One is that what he talks about, which is effectively some form of globalization, that is that we've gone beyond, um, you know, we've, we've certainly, obviously, we've gone beyond urban boundaries because there's an urban system, but then we've gone beyond that to a global system. So New York is not just, you know, the the central hub, in some sense, of the United States um, urban system. Um, But it has, you know, a major part of New York is part of a global urban system, which contains, uh, you know, um, London and Singapore and Hong Kong. Well, we know about Hong Kong now, but, uh, and, and so on. And uh, that's a very interesting question. And, uh, you know, the what, what effect that has on the urban, the rest of the urban system. So one of the things, what's the feedback of the fact that New York is now has a large part of its or a significant part of its uh, socioeconomic activity is looking outward, um, uh, whereas you know, it always had some of that, of course, uh, but it was probably my, much, much a minority, uh, and it was looking to a large extent inward. Um, and um, you know, what effect does that have on the rest of the American cities, which also have some of that, but much lesser degree? We don't know the answer. And in fact, interestingly, I've tried a couple of times to get a project going to really look at the data on this to really um, ask the question, first of all, for example, what is the global urban network? You know, I mean, can we think of, as I just said, New York, Singapore, uh, London, Paris, whatever, you know, the major cities, uh, to what extent are they a network of each other? What is the flows between them and so on? And to his point, there, you know, those flows are much less tied to the infrastructure in the usual sense, you know. They're, they're, so so, um, but they rely on transport systems, and they rely on the second major change, which is the internet. And uh, and and he doesn't say that in his question, but um, underlying all this is the rev- the, the internet revolution, uh, which we're do- participating in now. And um, so, uh, you know, what effect does that have? Because all of the, the work that we did and the theoretical part, the conceptual part, if we just go back and review that very briefly, is that, you know, there are two sort of major networks in the city. There's the infrastructure, the obvious, the roads, the electrical lines and the um, water lines and all the rest, which are very biological, but like our circulatory system and all the rest. And imposed on that and interfacing with it and the tension between them is that with the social network of the people exchanging information 
and, uh, you know, living our lives and creating socioeconomic activity and doing all the marvelous things that we do and so on and so forth. And those two things are, you know, tied to each other. And, um, and, and in the past, uh, in, in the more distant past, uh, that was limited by the fact that, um, you know, you had to walk everywhere. I mean, <laughs> roughly, or you could take a horse, I guess, you know, but, you know, cities were, you know, there's a, there was a theory developed uh, that the size of a city was limited to how far you could go in one hour. And that still persists to some extent. You know, the cities have grown, sort of governed very roughly by how far you could go in one hour. And indeed, most people, even today, don't want to commute more than an hour. It's changing, actually. I mean, now there are certainly London, San Francisco, Los Angeles, these cities, people are willing to commute an hour and a half or longer, which is horrendous, actually, each way. So, um, so that was, so the physicality was constraining cities, you know, and they expanded because we, you know, from this viewpoint, because we improved or invented new methods of transportation, um, you know, with the railroads first, then their electrification, and so on and so forth, or then automobiles, and so forth. Now we've done something remarkable, we've sort of leapfrogged all that by inventing the internet. And so I could talk to you um, 5,000 miles away as if you're in my living room. And that's pretty extraordinary. So the question is, um, you know, does that change anything? Um, it also brings up, by the way, a conceptual question as to um, what is a city? You know, I mean, that is, you know, if we were interacting Every if you were interacting with me every day and I were running a business here and you're in Dublin and you're running and you're become part of my business in some way, you could argue that you're now a citizen of Santa Fe and I'm actually a citizen of Dublin because I'm contributing to its socioeconomic activity because I'm not isolated. I'm interacting with all these other people here in Santa Fe. You're interacting with all those people in Dublin. And I'm therefore, by proxy, interacting with all this. So in some ways, I've become a citizen of Dublin, you know, or in the same way that you might have argued previous to this, that if you have someone living in Boston and he has an office in New York and he goes there two days for two days a week, he's a citizen of both New York and Boston because he's contributing to the socioeconomic activity, defining a city as the interconnectivity of people, that is by the social network. So um, this all, so these are the kinds of questions that relate to the question that was brought up, is we have to think much more broadly about what a city is, what social networks are, who is really contributing, who is not, and how does that relate to their physicality, and taking that even broader to beyond just just not just beyond the boundaries what we traditionally think of the boundaries of the city but the boundaries of the entire urban system and therefore the country 
So I don't know the answer to these, but I will say that I've thought, you know, I've given some thought to it. And I've tried actually to try to get some research projects going that we might address these questions. Uh, and, and primarily, first of all, to get data on what, you know, looking at these networks and trying to see have they have they actually changed? You know, I mean, that is, they may have changed, uh, how shall I say it, um, quantitatively, but they may not have changed qualitatively. Namely, the same dynamic is still going on, even though we've expanded beyond the traditional boundaries. And that has been, I believe, what has happened with all major innovations. So I suspect, and I may have said this earlier, I suspect that the coming of the internet, for example, and of globalization, um, what they have done primarily is just to speed everything up. That fundamentally, the same dynamics are still at work, the same kind of structures are at work, the same kind of scaling laws are still at work, but it's just faster. Beautiful. And just, and just is a very, <laughs> has a lot of weight in that because that has very profound implications, the speeding up, the acceleration. So firstly, David, thank you for your question. And uh, I'm not going to thank you for adding more time to our <laughs> conversation because uh, I had my own questions. But anyway, it was a it was a great question. And Jeffrey, I have to say you reminded me of Einstein's quote, where if I had uh, an hour to solve a problem, I'd spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and only five minutes thinking about the solution. Answering the right question is absolutely core and essentially to your work as well. So bravo to you. And um, I thought, because you were talking about the speed of change, I mean, for me, that goes everywhere too. watching my children as they evolve in a different world from me as children, and how even during the pandemic, as you said, which was an accelerant for many of the changes that were happening anyway, at a slower rate, happened because they were digital and digital tends to be exponential and exponential is very difficult for the human mind to comprehend. But I even was looking at how we allowed our, our kids, our older son in particular, to play Fortnite and these games, not because to keep him quiet so we were able to do work, but it was actually because it was the form of interaction with his friends who he could not see physically. And I thought that was interesting. And then we upgraded our internet so we'd faster speeds, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And that lends to different things like uh, the exponential rate of change of, of a lot of the technologies, we got better equipment, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And the reason I keep bringing up that term is it is core to this series, the exponential series. But also you do a beautiful job of explaining exponential in your book. And I loved in particular, the test tube change, which is just beautiful, because it does link to the planet. And that's where we're going next. Yes, uh, <laughs> indeed. Uh, it's a, this is a good segue to thinking about, you know, some of these questions uh, in, in, within this framework, uh, these questions to do with the, um, not just the state of the planet, but uh, more pertinently, maybe um, the long term future of the planet. And uh, and the kinds of challenges that we have from uh, everything from climate change to social unrest to disease and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, and I'd like to elaborate on that within this framework 
that uh, we've been talking about. But uh, an exponential does play a crucial role because one of the things that uh, uh, we didn't, I don't think we talked much about really, uh, maybe we did, I forget, did we talk much about uh, growth of cities and the super exponential, I mean, exponential growth? We touched on it, but not to. Not I need to say that, but I will say, because it is the, the, the segue into it. So one of the things that, um, you know, a, a major piece of all this is the whole question of growth. And, and, and as a subset of that, the whole question of exponential growth. And I'll, <laughs> since you prompted me, I will in a moment go over this, this, uh, this, this, this interesting example of the test tube growth that you mentioned. Um, but um, I want to just go back first to the biology because one of the things we're all conscious of, um, or at least uh, you know we, we're, we're all familiar with in one form or another, is that we stop growing, but we live in a socioeconomic system that not only doesn't stop growing, but we have made a by fiat that it mustn't stop growing. I mean, that's the paradigm that uh, came out of the Industrial Revolution and um, capitalism and free markets and so on, and it's been enormously successful. So that's sort of interesting. And the, this, this framework that I've described um, explains that. It explains why they're different. And uh, roughly speaking, it goes back to what we said, and I want to repeat it because it's really important for the entire planet, because the, the, the template for all growth within this picture is that just to limit it, it's driven all by energy. In fact, to recognize again that underlying everything is energy. You just can't get away from it. That, uh, as I say, every dream that you have, every flick of your eyelid, you're actually using the energy that's come from the sun, whether it's burnt coal or oil or solar energy. But you know, you blinking your eyes, nodding at me, as using that energy. And so everything works that way. So energy is the fundamental thing. So, and it gets, of course, it gets manifested in very many different ways, obviously. Um, but in biology, that's metabolic energy. And, uh, and we talked about that, that metabolic energy, metabolic rate scales in this sublinear fashion, the bigger you are, the less you need per cell, per gram of tissue and so on. Um, and, and that metabolic energy gets apportioned between maintaining the system, uh, maintaining the cells, repairing damage, and so on, um, and uh, allocation to new growth. And uh, so you can write that mathematically. And the thing that you realize is that the supply, the, the supply system, metabolic rate, is decreasing per cell the bigger you are, but you're trying to add at a linear rate. You're trying to add linearly because you just keep adding cells. Um, and so eventually the uh, demand for, which is linear, um, uh, the, the supply can't keep up with that because it's sublinear, it's uh, less per cell. So that's why you stop. And if you put that into mathematics, it's very pretty, it gives rise to, this kind of so-called sigmoidal growth that you do stop, and it has predicts growth of any organism in, in, in principle. So that, as we just said, is a terrible metaphor or paradigm for socioeconomic growth. Um, 
a prime minister or president that advocates that these days, especially in the United States, would never get reelected. Um, you have to have open-ended growth. So, uh, and indeed, what's great about the theory is that it actually uh, predicts that because, um, just to recall, in socioeconomic systems, and now we can think either of cities or of the planet as a whole, um, the, uh, we, we are driven by the dynamic of social networks, which are positive feedback. And that gave rise to this super linear scaling of socioeconomic metrics in cities. And by the way, I didn't say it then, but now I'm gonna to move to the planet of the planet itself, that if you plot um, any metric, any socioeconomic metric versus the population, because we can't, we don't have, unfortunately, we don't have uh, 50 different planets, which we <laughs> compare. But what we do have is the same planet with different populations, because we keep growing. <laughs> so if you plot it versus population, it grows, you know, in a super linear fashion. Um, and um, uh, if you put that into the equations, it gives rise to faster than exponential growth. And that's what we see, and that's great. And, and so the, 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 the theory is very, not only self-consistent, it agrees, its predictions agree with data and so on and so forth. Now, it has a fatal flaw in it, not the theory, but a fatal consequence. And that fatal consequence is a singularity. And I will come to that in a minute because now I'm going to go back to your question of exponential growth. I use the word super exponential because, in fact, we're growing faster than exponential. So first, I want to talk about what exponential is because, and I spent quite a bit of time in my book talking about it because one of the things I discovered as I got into this and gave talks to uh, practitioners and uh, you know, corporate people and business people is that people use this word exponential. You know, we're growing exponentially or we, you know, whatever. And, uh, and I realized they didn't understand what it was uh, because it's used colloquially. And what they really meant was it's growing very fast. That's all they meant, going very, very fast. Well, actually, when you, when you grow exponentially at the beginning, you actually grow quite slowly. It so happens. Um, and then it picks up. And that's what I'm going to explain with my test tube example. So here's the example. Let's see if I could reconstruct it. <laughs> I wish you, you should have primed me first so I could reread my bloody book. <laughs> we can always pause it. And <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I can, I, I, I can do it. So here's the idea. Suppose you're in a lab and you want to produce a bunch of penicillin, for example. And um, you calculate that if I put um, a bacterium in the bottom of a test tube, that by noon, the test tube will be full and I'll have all this bacteria, this, all this penicillin and so on. So, okay, so great. So at eight o'clock in the morning, you start, put this, the bacterium in the test tube and it starts dividing. So after, you know, whatever the 
dividing time is. Let's say it's one second. It doesn't matter. Let's just use one second. The time it takes for each bacterium to uh, bifurcate into two. So after one second, there's two. After two seconds, there's four. After three seconds, there's eight, and so on. It keeps building up. It's great. And, uh, you know, eventually it's going to fill the test tube. Now, think, you. Uh, the question I like to ask is, between eight o'clock in the morning and noon, when it's going to be full, when roughly is it half full? And I've asked this question many times. And usually the majority, and often the vast majority of people say something, well, probably around 10 o'clock, maybe 11, it'll be half full. And of course, the answer is it's half full at 11.59 and 59 seconds. One second before noon, when it stops, it's half full because it's divided, it's adding two. So if it's half full, in one second, all of those ones that are there are gonna double, so it fills the next half. Shit, you realize something then. Then you think, boy, two seconds before, it's only a quarter full. Three seconds before, it's a two to two cubed, it's an eight full. Four seconds, it's a sixteenth. So if you looked four seconds before noon, you could barely see at the bottom. There's just a little bit of bacteria. <laughs> and all those bacteria are thinking, great, we've been living for all this time. Everything's going great. It's fantastic. Second later, they're still great because it's still only a quarter. These don't realize. They don't realize even one second before that they've only got one second to live. The whole system is going to be finished in one second. And that's the, that's the nature and problem of the exponential. And that is the world we're living in now. That, and, that, and the problem with the exponential typically is, if you're not aware of it, and you become aware of it, it's usually too late. Just like those bacteria, by the time they realize when they're, you know, you might have a few of those bacteria saying, shit, you know, it's weird that we've suddenly gone from a quarter to a half so quickly. Maybe we should worry, you know, because look, if you look up, yeah, I can actually see now the top of the test tube. <laughs> I can see there's maybe we should be thinking about this a little bit. Well, we still have a lot of time because there's still half of the test tube to go. In fact, they only have one second. So that's sort of, you know, that's an extreme example. And it's, but it, it does illustrate the kind of concern we should have about the situation we're in and uh, why we should think seriously about the fact that we are driven more and more to exponential growth and uh, how, how can we control that and still have the kind of society and quality of life that we have, the exciting kind of life, innovative life and so on, without having this mad exponential growth uh, and find ways of dealing with that. So that's sort of the motivation um, of that. And um, 
uh, we're not doing it. I mean, frankly, I mean, there are obviously, it's like those few bacteria I talked about a moment ago. There are a few that are seriously thinking about this, but overall not. And it may be some of those bacteria already saw when it was a quarter, half full, things getting a bit hot. Some of the climate's changing a little bit. Something's weird going on here. <laughs> the analog. <laughs> there might have been. There might be analogs, especially with so many bacteria there, metabolizing. Probably the temperature does go up. Actually, <laughs> so it's not so different. Anyway, um, so that's the issue, and we need to understand it. And I must say, in the the, the these last few years, um, I've been giving more and more thought to it, especially this last year. Um, and, and just to go back, uh, this work came out of the work on cities. Um, and um, and I, I was thinking of it originally, you know, when I first derived that, uh, we derived it, it was in terms of the cities, but I realized that it applies to any system that has this kind of thing. In fact, you could even think of this in the personal terms as your own person, you know, the way you grow and so on. So here's the thing. That if you go back to the equations now, so forget about that example for the moment. You go back to the equations. I said it was superlinear scaling, and um, it, it gives rise to faster than exponential growth. So it's even worse than what I said for those bacteria. Um, and that has the consequence, mathematically, that it leads to something that's technically called a finite time singularity. And all that means in English is that in some finite time um, in the future, whatever the sociometric you're looking at is going to become infinite. That is, there's going to be an infinite GDP. There's going to be an infinite number of flu cases. There's going to be an infinite number of patents. There's going to be an infinite number of crimes. Well, that's completely crazy. Obviously, you can't do that. It doesn't make sense. And indeed, the theory tells you why it doesn't make sense, because if you continue with that, the system stagnates and collapses. And so, um, so this is that simple kind of um, uh, description I just gave is a kind of um, sophisticated version of the old Malthusian argument that many people are familiar with, um, and I'm sure many know of that uh, Thomas Malthus, back at the end of the 19th century, already saw with the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, and capitalism and so on, that we were getting into exponential growth. And he said, this is just not sustainable. But he said, it's not sustainable because agriculture is linear. That is, we can't produce the food to uh, sustain these people, all these people. And so uh, he said, we better do something about it. And uh, he also suggested all kinds of um, um, draconian measures that might be taken, and in particular, especially to stop the, the laboring class and the poor to having children and so on. I mean, it was very... You know, it was end of the 18th century, so you can imagine it was very top-down and so on. <clears throat> so, um, but he was, but very early on, early economists and people thinking about these things pushed back very hard. And basically, 
um, what developed was a very powerful argument against what Malthus said. And that was, well, what you've not realized is in particular that we're going to make um, agricultural innovations that will keep up with this. And in general, society will make innovations. And in fact, people already were well aware of that because the whole industrial revolution had created this burst of innovative energy with machinery and, and the cotton gin, and oh, you know, there's stuff, steam engines and control mechanisms and all this marvelous stuff, this wonderful iron machinery. So, uh, and, and people were able to extrapolate that, that we could imagine doing that with agriculture, but also it would just be so, you know, this is totally naive. And so he was sort of trashed mostly. But many people have stayed with it and it's always remained there and it reared its ugly head, so to speak, in the 70s. Some of your people may be familiar with the Club of Rome uh, study that, uh, uh, that was done. Um, the, the, if, for those not familiar, there was something put together in the early 70s called the Club of Rome, which was a bunch of industrialists who got together worried about the future of the planet, believe it or not, in about maybe the late 60s even. Um, it was the person that started it was either the CEO, anyway, someone major person at Fiat in, uh, in Torino in Italy. Um, but they put together a bunch of industrialists who were very concerned about this. And they funded a, um, a, a research effort at MIT to look into, you know, could we model the future? It was one of the first serious attempts to kind of model the, uh, the, the planet long-term. And um, they brought up some of these issues, but again, they were poor about innovation. So it didn't kind of sustain itself. And then there was a book published by uh, an ecologist named Paul Ehrlich in about 1972, 73, called The Population Bomb. that was a huge bestseller, extremely influential, where he brought back this Malthusian argument and basically said, um, you know, we just can't, we're not going to survive. We're basically survive. You know, we probably won't make it beyond, I may have this wrong, you know, the, the 80s. This was in the early 70s. And he predicted that the India would collapse because it, it couldn't sustain a population more than, I think it was 280 million. Well, I can tell you now, it's, one, it's, a, it's almost a billion more than that. So, and he didn't take into account innovation. You know, he just didn't. So, you know, there were good reasons to push back on this argument, this uh, this Malthusian argument. I I feel this dramatically talks to the listener of this show, who is a change maker, who is the bacteria in the test tube going, we're going to hit the top where bread is spill over the, the, the Cassandra, who's calling out the future. And it's it's a it's a a desperate place to be. It's like the Semmelweis effect, you know, you, you go crazy. Sometimes it's not great for your mental health, because you're in organizations saying, we're headed for an iceberg, we're, we're, we're on a melting, uh, we're on melting the burning platform, many things. And there's all types of biases in there. 
there's hyperbolic discounting where we don't see the future until it's too late, all this type of thing. And I often think about things like nobody took AIDS seriously until Magic Johnson got AIDS. In, in, in the UK now, Davina McCall, I don't, do you remember the presenter Davina McCall from your time there? She, she has been a great uh, a beacon of light for, hum, for HRT, for uh, hormone therapy for women after menopause. And it always takes until the platform's burning or uh, Mika Zenko was on the show recently talking about red teaming and he said the best way to get a, a business to take a, a serious effect is like w they'll take fire regulation seriously when you burn down the building across the road <laughs> and, and it's the problem because I see you as a, a bacteria a positive bacteria in the test tube <laughs> saying look and the Santa Fe your Santa Fe colleagues yeah. same and, and Santa Fe Institute wouldn't exist only that there was some change makers back 100 years ago or 50 years ago. And, and I wanted to just say this because we have a listenership in Sweden. And Arrhenius, who won the Nobel Prize in 1903, was also calling these things out. Um, you know, Malthus got it right in one sense that he warned us, but he got it wrong in that he missed a crucial element, namely this innovation. So economists have um, not taken any of it truly seriously. I mean, and so we continue to advocate open-ended growth and so on. And um, because there's this mantra, uh, we're going to innovate. We're always going to innovate ourselves out of the problem. You know, we're very clever. And indeed, that's true. We are. And uh, so what, so, um, so now let me go back to what I said earlier and this singularity, which is the sort of sophisticated version of Malthus, but again, doesn't take into account innovation. So here's where innovation comes in. So you realize, how in the hell did you avoid the singularity in the past? Well, we've avoided indeed because of, of innovation. So the idea is you grow in this exponential, super exponential fashion. And then if you kept going, you would collapse. But you recognize that you've grown in this way because there's a certain paradigm. I mean, the, in, in terms of, you know, more technically speaking, the parameters of the equation are kind of fixed by the fact that you discovered iron, you, you know, you have the iron age, or you discovered a bronze or whatever, you know, something that you, that sort of sets the background paradigm for sort of determining the gross features of life at that time. We discovered coal, discovered oil. We invent maybe the telephone in whatever you think of as a major innovation. We discovered computers, we invented computers. Then we invented the internet and so on. These sort of, what they do is they reset the clock. So we're going along, growing exponentially. If we kept going with no changes, you collapse. So obviously what you have to do is before then, you better make a major innovation. You better reset what we call the boundary conditions. You better reinvent yourself. You better make a major paradigm shift. Whatever language you want to use, you do something major. You, you discover the internet. It completely changes everything. In fact, it even supersedes the computer. It has its own life that we've, okay? all built on the things that come in the past, of course. 
So, um, and you just keep going. And that's what we've done. And if you look at the history of uh, mankind in terms of major innovations, that's pretty much the way it's happened. However, this is a theory, it's a mathematical theory, and it tells you, yes, so there's kind of theorem that you could state, sort of, that if you demand open-ended growth, which is what we do, um, then you have to innovate on a regular basis. Well, every book that's published on business and business says that, so there's nothing, you know, yes, cycles of innovation and all the rest of that stuff. Yes, great, so nothing new. What is new is that this tells you not that you have to innovate regularly, you have to do it faster and faster. And it tells you how much faster you have to do it. So something that might have taken, you know, 50 years to develop a thousand years ago, now has to take 10 years and you have to do it in 10 years. And that's what's happened with the internet. I mean, this is, didn't take very long to develop and, uh, and so on. But the time to the next one is going to come faster and faster. And uh, so we're on this accelerating treadmill that uh, we have to keep going faster and faster and jump from this treadmill to another treadmill that's going even faster and so on. And the question is, is that conceivable that we could do it? So if you took this sort of reductio ad absurdum to its sort of logical conclusion, so to speak, um, you could say that, well, at some stage, you're going to have to have a major innovation like the internet in, within six months, then within four months. Well, obviously, I'm, that's crazy. So that's a huge issue. And indeed, I think that's part of what we're feeling now, this enormous pressure of the acceleration of time and the acceleration, the concomitant acceleration of innovation, the necessary need to do that. So let me back off a second because I'm a physicist, I'm a scientist, and it's not just speculation. Some of this is obviously somewhat speculative, but it's science and it has equations and it has predictions. And the great thing about science is when you make predictions, you try to test them with data or experiment. You either throw out the theory or amend it and move on. And that's the iterative process of scientific progress. So this predicts that there should be these singularities and that we should, and it tells you that if you plot the data in a particular way, this is what you should see. And without going into any details, I can tell you that we've taken global data for all kinds of socioeconomic metrics, like how much total energy use, GDP, um, financial investment. Um, I don't know, there's probably 20 of these metrics. And you plot them, and there it is. There you can see it's exact, it predicts exactly that you're approaching a singularity. And it tells you, and I can't tell you the answer now because this is definitely, this is hot off the press, actually. <laughs> the details of this, not the ideas. The ideas have been around. Where, where can people find it if, when it does come out? Well, in, the book, the, in the, book, the book talks about this within the, with, it does talk about this. But you've built on it since. That, we've, that built, we've built on it in the last year. I mean, here, here's just going back. 
the work in the book I did, we did uh, a few years ago, but it was still, I felt at the speculative level and we didn't have data and so on. And I wasn't sure, and I was very intrigued by it. And I've thought about it a lot, but the last year or two, we've got data together, large amounts of data, and we started analyzing it. And to my amazement, and in some certain and delight as a scientist, it agreed with the predictions extraordinarily, actually. Uh, and it shows that, uh, you know, independent even of our theory, there's a singularity, we're approaching a singularity. And indeed, one of the things I will hint at, that what we see is that we actually made already a major change in the mid 70s. Uh, and, and somehow that probably, we've wondered, we've just started talking about what the hell happened in the 70s. Well, one of the major things we all remember is the first oil crisis. I mean, that had a huge effect, actually. But also the beginnings of globalization. The, there was a real change in uh, the kind of economic thinking. And you can see this break. It's extraordinary. I mean, there were, we were headed to a singularity before, and we sort of shifted towards another, you know, we've as the theory predicts, so we have to keep doing it. So the, what we can't, the two things obviously cannot answer with this is, what is the next innovation? <laughs> you know, you can answer, and we, I, 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 we can answer, ultimately, when roughly you would expect the next singularity if we don't do anything. You know, that is, is it 2040, 2060, 2070? It's certainly one thing I can tell you, it ain't 20, 20 well, where are we now? 20, it ain't 30. <laughs> it isn't 2100, I tell you. It's not 100 years, it's much shorter. It's your lifetime, not mine. It's probably not my lifetime, almost certainly not my lifetime, but it probably is your lifetime. So, and, and we will do things. So that's, but we can't answer what it will be, except there will have to be one and then, There'll have to be one coming in a shorter time beyond that. Um, the, you know, it could be electric cars, self-driving cars. Who knows? I don't know. I mean, I doubt it, frankly, but it could be. Could be other things. I don't know. I mean, there's all kinds of... But, but the interesting thing is, how do you get out of all this? And uh, this is now truly speculative. And that is, I think, is to recognize, and maybe we did talk about this earlier a little bit, and that is one of the things that's happened in the last 30 years, 20, 30 years, is the word innovation has become synonymous with technology. When I say the word innovation, we usually think of, you know, a new type of iPhone. I think we did talk about this. Your, your iPhone 6. <laughs> yeah, my iPhone 6, my ancient iPhone 6. But we talk about new gadgets of various kinds, you know, uh, but they're technological in various ways, you know, self-driving cars, even electric cars, uh, but new technologies, some of which will be sort of minor changes like a new iPhone, but something like self If we truly had self-driving cars and an entire system, that is, of course, a major that's potentially a major paradigm shift because it will have all kinds of other implications, of course. Um, but we do think technologically. And the thing I began to recognize is that that's how I'd been thinking. And in fact, when people 
look at innovation, the, 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 you know, academically, and they start, you know, looking at the science of innovation. All of it is to do with technology. And then I realized, well, that's sort of crazy. I mean, we've had, true. I mean, some of the major innovations in human history have been cultural. Jesus Christ being one of them, or Buddha, or, uh, you know, even Martin Luther King, you know, and so on. They're, you know, they, I mean, Martin Luther King may not have been on the grand scale of Jesus, but he was a major innovation. But there have been these major cultural innovations, and some have been minor cultural innovations. Um, and so I began to realize that maybe, and this is sort of what many people think, of course, there will have to be a cultural innovation, a major cultural innovation, in order for us to get out of this in some way. And some of that we already see, it's at a very tiny level, you know, thinking more um, about, uh, you know, being green and sort of more caring about the environment. But, it, but, but of course, all the signs are the, are the opposite, because the major changes that have been taking place more recently have been in the opposite direction towards authoritarian rule, towards more imposition, towards sort of a regression. I mean, the latest thing we have here, um, you know, this uh, abortion rights has changed. By the way, this is just tangential. It's hard for me to believe, having had lots of Irish friends in the 50s and 60s, and been in Ireland in the 60s, that Ireland is one of the most liberal countries when it comes to abortion. And the United States is now one of the most repressive. But anyway, that's, but, but it is illustrative of something. The it's, fact that, that the United States has become more and more repressive, a country that was founded on, uh, you know, creating more rights for the individual has become um, in many ways more repressive and more authoritarian, I mean, embodied in Mr. Trump. Um, so what we need, the way I've often put it, is we need an anti-Trump. We need someone with the charisma and power of persuasion of Donald Trump, as an example, um, that instead of not believing in science and doesn't care about truth and is quite happy to tell lies and uh, create truly fake news and believes in repression and control. We need someone the opposite who believes, you know, I feel like a 60s person, you know, believes in love and community and the collective spirit and altruism and so on, all within our, you know, I, I believe strongly in capitalism, by the way, but all within our making capitalism um, a little, little softer, if you like, but also in social responsibility. And indeed, one of the things that I have enjoyed is to see here and there, you know, companies recognizing that uh, more and more, it's not just profit motive, but they have a social responsibility. You know, there is this. And that Club of Rome thing I described was, you know, it's not that it hasn't been there in the past, even in the 19th century. Um, but uh, the Club of Rome thing was a great example of, you know, uh, people in, in positions of great power, controlling major industries, recognizing that there is a, they have a, a duty to also not just supply interesting and exciting goods to people um, and facilities to people, but also to care about people's well, truly well-being 
and uh, the future of the planet. And there is, you know, I think we are seeing versions of that to varying degrees. Some is maybe just pure publicity, but I think, frankly, some of it is for real. Um, but it's minor on the scale of what we need, and we don't have what we don't have is political leadership. And, and one of the things, you know, this is I'm not talking as a scientist now, obviously, but one of the things that has become clear to me is that contrary to what I'd hoped, I can't see this happening bottom up. I think we need leadership. We do need charismatic, political, maybe spiritual leadership. Um, you know, I mean, some, you know, as I say, a Jesus Christ or, <laughs> a, you know, I don't know, a Muhammad, I don't know. I mean, I, I, what, what those people have wrought on the planet is one thing in the long run, but, but they did have this ability to galvanize people and make them rethink, you know, what are the, what are the important things of life? and to think both individually and collectively. And we're missing that. There's no evidence of, um, you know, we haven't had leadership like that for a very long time. And I may be wrong with all this, by the way. I don't, uh, I'm just, it's pure speculation. But but I'm, I'm interested, you know, what I do do is, of course, um, try to create the science, help develop the science that can inform leadership because in the end, it is a political problem that we have to deal with in terms of saving the planet, which is the way I do think about it. Um, and, um, but, but understanding. And so the, another philosophical part of this is that um, I do believe that we can't solve the problem until we understand it. And that's a physicist viewpoint. Um, that's not always true. Sometimes you can solve a problem, but not really understanding what caused it. But typically, when you do that, it has all kinds of other unintended consequences, because you didn't understand where it came from or what it's connected to. So I'm very much devoted to trying to see it in its big picture, and the interconnectivity between things as well as the what is the underlying dynamic and mechanism that has led us to this. And the only way I know of doing that is to do it through this physics lens, if you like, or scientist lens. And so that's the the last one or two years of my creative life. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, you've, you've sparked so many thoughts as as always. And um, I was thinking about you know how so many of us are the, those the listeners of the show are those people who are follow people like you who are calling it out for what it really is, who have the bravery to do that. But also recognizing that, as you said, some companies like have so much power, like Microsoft, for example, with diversity and insisting on diversity. Uh, uh, and I'm talking about a workforce here with their suppliers, like that power to be able to to have this knock on effect is so strong. That's one thing. The other then is the the politicians and the the system is so is so systemically broken where I am so short term on it that I can't look at these things because I may avoid an iceberg that nobody will ever know that I was the one who actually did the work, you know, and I, and I, I think that's so reflective of organizations where the leader is like kind of going, well, the work I'll do here on innovation won't take hold until I'm retired. So why would I bother? I'll just 
milk the cash cow. And, and in a way, that's what's happening with the planet as well. It's like, we'll, we'll milk the cash cow until the bacteria is almost outside the test tube, which shot the test tube. So this, there's a lot in there. And um, I wanted to just say, because you mentioned your, your physicist background, uh, another comment on LinkedIn by Mark Montgomery, he said, good to see Jeffrey again, pass on my regards. It was quite fascinating observing and listening to an accomplished theoretical physicist from Los Alamos National Laboratory as he turned his attention to cities and social interactions. So that's a little tip of the hat from Mark Montgomery to you. Yes, the, the last uh, last comment here is um, purely because I, I said to these people that I, I would do it and they've been gracious to drop comments. And this is linked very, very closely to what we talked about it. And it's to do with global warming, the exponential scaling of temperature and the metabolic theory of ecology. And you say in this section, and this will be our last piece of, uh, of content, because we are homeotherms, meaning that our body temperature remains approximately constant, we tend to forget the temperature plays a huge role across all of life. We are the exception, perhaps only now with the advent of global warming, are we beginning to appreciate how sensitive the natural world and the environment are to small changes in temperature and the threat to, that this imposes. What is shocking, you tell us, is how few people, even many, many scientists, appreciate that this sensitivity to temperature is also exponential. And I quote that because I was prompted to by a listener who's a, a, a long-term listener from the show from the very start, Camillus O'Brien, and thank you, Camillus, for your question, who asked, when both of you discussed the speed of innovation, it got me thinking, particularly with the news today, and this was a couple of days ago, the warning that there was a 50-50 chance that the planet will see a 1.5 centigrade increase in temperature. This possibility requires mankind mankind to drive drive innovation in tackling the issue immediately. As Jeffrey says, he, he says, we'll be discussing the planet on your next episode, this one, it would be to, fantastic to hear his views and thoughts about this. Well, Camillus, I'm going to tee up <laughs> Jeffrey with a great quote for, that he has from his book, and perhaps he'll expand on this. And I know his time is limited. So the answer will be short. You said in the book, Jeffrey, a modest 2% change in ambient temperature leads to a 20 to 30% change in growth and mortality rates. This is huge. And therein lies our problem. If global warming induces a temperature increase of around 2% or 2 degrees centigrade, which is it is on track to do and you predicted this a couple of years ago, then the pace of almost all biological life across all scales will increase by a whopping 30 20 to 30 percent. This is highly non trivial, and will potentially wreak havoc with the ecosystem. That shocked me reading that. And then when that news broke a few days ago, I was like, "Uh Oh, everybody should listen to this man, everybody should listen to anybody who is the bacteria calling out the fact that they're going to spill over. So maybe you'll share some thoughts about that. And then we'll close this magnificent episode. Yes, thank you. Yes, so it is just to repeat what you, you quoted me as saying, um, the um, one thing that is not appreciated, um, certainly in the general public, and even, you know, among academics, and uh, uh, is the um, extraordinary sensitivity of life in general, to temperature. And one of the things I wanted to point out at the beginning there is that, um, 
we are remarkably insensitive. That's been our, one of our strengths. I mean, one of the reasons we're very successful, or mammals in general are successful, is that we developed this um, uh, constant temperature, which is, you know, we're, we're essentially unique. So we're not that sensitive to it. So, um, but everybody's familiar with it. I mean, uh, you know, um, we are here in particular because, um, you know, um, we live in a climate that's uh, quite hot. There's great variations here in the temperature. There's, there can be as much as 40 degrees Fahrenheit change in a single day. It's very cool nights. It's wonderful, actually, uh, because we're at high altitude and then the days get to be warm into the 80s in terms of Fahrenheit. Um, and so what you see is often um, lizards. If you look at early in the morning, if you're up at six or seven, can barely move. And they try to move into the sun, and then the sun comes and it warms them up, and they can start metabolizing. And they do it very quickly because it's exponential. And then they can run around and run away from you. But you, if you want to catch them, you do it early in the morning when they're cold. And, and it's the same with flies and bees and things. If you do catch them in the, early in the morning, when it's cold, they're quite lethargic. They have no choice about that. And we, doesn't matter what time of day it is and how cold it is, in principle, we can do all the things that we did at, 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 a, at a cold temperature as in a hot temperature. So there's a so that I think must have must have some kind of psychological effect on our inability to appreciate changes in temperature in terms of our physiology and motion and so on. So having said that, it is true. You mentioned Arrhenius earlier, who was the first person um, to um, uh, realize this whole question of global warming way back at the beginning of the 20th century. So well over 100 years ago, he recognized what became known as the greenhouse effect. And um, that uh, there would be this possibility, not possibility, inevitability, actually, that things would uh, gradually heat up. Um, he didn't talk much, as I know, I may be wrong, because I don't know the literature well enough, I don't think he talked much about its potential effects. Maybe he did, I don't remember. Uh, but he did win the Nobel Prize, by the way, he was a Swedish chemist, um, and, uh, and you know, things are named after him. Um, but um, he also, um, wrote the first formula, really, to recognize the exponential um, sensitivity of um, chemical reactions, because that's what fundamentally it all is, biochemical reactions to temperature. And uh, as we said, you know, what the whole point about exponential, the whole consequence of an exponential is small changes produce big effects. Um, and, um, and so I've done some years ago with my biology colleagues, we wrote papers on this and, uh, it's, uh, it's now encoded in the literature, but one of the things in fact was already known is just that we really just brought it much more to the fore, um, was that, uh, what I, what you just quoted, you know, this, uh, a couple of degrees centigrade. Uh, will produce a, sort of a 20 or 30% change in growth rates. Um, so um, in some ways, that's good. 
in some parts, things were growing much quicker, you get crops much quicker, and so on. Um, in other parts, it would be terrible. Uh, but in any ways, what it will do <clears throat> um, is <clears throat> change the ecosystems, clearly. We're already beginning to see that. Changes, you know, growth periods. Uh, you know, we, we're all familiar with spring comes earlier and so on and so forth. And in many parts, winters are milder and therefore and climate change. I mean, all of these things depend on chemical reactions are all governed by this um, sort of Arrhenius factor, exponential factor. Um, now, just one side comment on that. If this change were to take place over evolutionary times, it would, you know, things would very slowly adapt and accommodate to these changes because that's what's happened. You know, it's only when you get changes over human times, which is what's happened, that you know, the system can't adjust. You know, there's a huge shock to the system, and it's not clear what the consequences are going to be. I mean, one, we've written papers on not just the growth rate, but on the size of things. So things may grow quicker, but the end result will be plants that are smaller or, you know, produce. You won't have as much produce and so on. So there's all kinds of things and not enough work yet has been done on this. In fact, I'm sort of disappointed, frankly, that <clears throat> there isn't much more energy given to trying to model some of these effects. You know, what are the effects going to be of this exponential change? We've done some, but, uh, you know, you need much more detailed models, detailed studies and so on. But... Um, this is uh, this is the scary part. Actually, we don't know. And uh, just to repeat what I said, um, um, you know, there might be places where this makes things much better in some ways. You know that uh, you know it could be that um, you know uh, um, instead of having the crappy climate of uh, uh, the British Isles, including Ireland you'll get sort of a beautiful Mediterranean climate. You'll be going down to Cork and sunbathing in, uh, you know, in February. I mean, who knows? Cork's just... a different country. You have Is that to... Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't have said that. That was me going <laughs> in territory. I was just trying to think what was down there on the coast. Uh, but anyway, no, uh, but, but, you know, I mean, there will be, there will be places, but overall, uh, and many places will be devastated, um, completely devastated. But overall, the problem is it's going to be unpredictable and we won't know, you know, and it's going to cause un huge unintended and untold consequences. And so um, that's why there is this enormous urgency to really deal with climate change. And so I'm, of course, extremely sympathetic with that. I think we need to do much more work and we need to have this cultural change, which is sort of beginning to happen, but on a small scale relative to the hugeness of the problem. Um, but I want to say what I said, I think maybe even in the first episode, that climate change is just one piece of this. We we It's good to focus on it, but we shouldn't get so totally obsessed by it that we forget all the other things that are connected to it, and uh, you know, including even things like you know, how, uh, businesses, how businesses are going to behave, but you know, the health business, the health industry, 
health itself, disease, and Wuhan and the pandemic are phenomenal example, and it should have woken us up to thinking in a more integrated way about all this. Wuhan and uh, the pandemic and its interconnectivity is connected to global climate change. So anyway, it's, uh, it's we need, I, I, in the book I called for, as I had before I wrote the book in an essay I wrote for, we need to have a, um, um, a grand unified theory of global sustainability. <laughs> and in fact, what that meant was not just from a scientific viewpoint that we need what I've been talking about, this sort of big integrated view, but bringing us all together, people like yourself, but people from, um, you know, uh, from the business world, people, politicians, practitioners, um, citizens, but bringing us all together in some multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar project that, that globally we all participate in to address this problem. And, uh, you know, because it's again, you know, it, it needs, I, I, I coined this idea that it has to be, we need this sort of attitude towards the Apollo program or the atomic bomb, which are diddly on the scale of what this needs to be done. And, uh, and unfortunately, going back to what we were just talking about with the bacteria, um, you know, human beings have evolved to respond to warfare on short time scales, you know, I mean, we respond very quickly, we were quickly quick to get involved with Ukraine, we we're quick to, you know, respond to Nazi Germany. But we're lethargically tortoise like slow in responding to the biggest threat possible, which is the future of the planet. <laughs> because it's so hard to viscerally feel it. I That's mean, we're, we're expanding the societal system is expanding exponentially. And we sort of know it because we can just think back a little bit. But we don't, you know, we just shrug our shoulders and enjoy it and move on. Let's help people listen. And uh, there's just a couple of things I, I feel, you know, firstly, what you said is so true. You, you know, even with the show, the innovation show, I, I, I didn't you put it in categories, you know, when you're when you're putting your podcast up. And originally, I had it in technology. And I went, it's not technology, because innovation is everything. It's 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 about thought. It's about mindset. It's about culture. It's it's society. And I had it in society and culture. And, and people kept going, I can't find the show. And then I had to put it back in technology. And I was like, it's just because because it's synonymous with technology. And then a lot of people come listen to the show and they, they go like one week we'll cover AI and the next week we'll cover uh, climate change or whatever. And, and it, that people don't some people don't get that. And I, I'm very, very grateful that you recognize that because it's really, really core to the whole thing. And the, the other thing is, I wanted to thank you uh, immensely. And I have a quote that I pulled from the book that I, I wanted to really pull and just because I, I think it's a nice way to recognize your work, because I think this is a a really beautiful series that you've done. And you've dedicated a lot of time to that. And I'm very, very grateful. And there's a beautiful saying, I think it's a Chinese proverb. And it's like, great people plant seeds for trees under whose shade they'll never sit. And I think that's what you've done. And I think that Arrhenius did that back in 1903. And uh, hopefully those seeds of thought will actually blossom as well. 
And I, I'm going to give this quote, and um, then I'm going to hand to you to give your final message to our audience, and then we'll close this beautiful series. But this is what I loved. I thought it was a nice quote to finish on, and, and thank you, and also your your family and all your work, because I found it in a section in which you talk about a movie that I also loved, which was the the extraordinary Ingmar Bergman film, The Seventh Seal. I, I, it scared me, actually, because I saw it as a kid. And in in this movie, a knight attempts to beat death and plays chess and keeps asking questions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you use it in the quest in the in the context of lifespans. And I quote you here when you say, "On a personal side note, I was gratified to learn from these averages that, having reached seventy five years old, this is a few years back, I can expect to live almost twelve years longer and die at an astonishingly astonishing age of almost eighty seven." which is far longer than I had ever thought. If true, and I'm able to stay healthy, it gives me time to finish this book, which you did, to see how my children blossom as they approach midlife, even possibly see my grandchildren growing up, see the Santa Fe Institute continue to flourish and receive a $100 million endowment, and the most likely of these, see Tottenham Hotspur win the Premier League, and even <laughs> and even more un- <laughs> and even more unlikely the champions league and i want to say this as well to my wonderful wife of more than 52 years now jacqueline who is now 73 years i'm i'm changing on the fly here um should according to these averages uh, averages expect to live to almost 88 so she'll have more than 4 years <laughs> without me driving her nuts in my dotage. <laughs> so I, I thought that was a lovely way to thank you, uh, to tip the hat to the magnificent work you've done. And also thank you for me, I, I'm so grateful for doing this. And I've learned so much, you've sparked so much thoughts for me and for so many other people, and I'll continue to share your work whenever I can. And I wanted to give it to you to close today's and this episode today's show. <laughs> well, you have left me speechless. I have to say, <laughs> your your flattery is uh, is uh, is much appreciated. Let's put it that way. Thank you very much. And I enjoyed the show, and I enjoyed discussing with you. And your questions were great, and your your lead-ins were terrific. So I've enjoyed that very much. And 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 uh, I'll say, you know, one of the reasons I do it is partly because you were such a good host and um, you were so flattering. It was hard not, <laughs> of course, my ego. It's authentic, by the way. I, I don't, uh, you know, it's not, it's not um, sycophant, sycophant. No, I know. I, I took it. No, I realized that. But, but, but I did want to say that I feel very strongly about this, especially this, about all of the work, actually, but particularly this, this, the, this, passionate concern about the future of the planet and really understanding it as a scientist. Um, uh, And uh, because of that, um, I I really want to take advantage of these kinds of opportunities um, to uh, try to get the message across, try to, you know, um, um, possibly even inspire people, but particularly bring to consciousness um, a way of thinking about this and and ultimately lead possibly to action i hope in for a few people um but um because of that i'm i'm not only willing it's not you know i do not consider this a burden at all quite the contrary 
Um, I consider this uh, something that I tremendously enjoy. Um, and part of it, of course, is my own ego and narcissism, talking about my, my own work, needless to say. But the other part is, as I say, I really want to connect with people and get some of the ideas across because I think they are important as a complementary way of thinking. Just, a, you know, because it's not one of the things I learned, of course, was that this, uh, except for among physicists who would respond to this, um, outside of physics, um, most people don't think in this way and are not used to it. And uh, and I've tried to translate, you know, what a bunch of technical ideas in some ways or technical concepts into English and uh, hope that uh, by by doing so, people sort of get at least some of it. So that was the idea of writing the book. And that's why I'm, I really respond to your uh, invitation to participate in this, which I deeply appreciate. Well, it's been an, an absolute honor. Author of Scale, The Universal Laws of Life and Death in Organisms, Cities and Companies. Jeffrey West, thank you for everything you do. Thank you. Man, my heart is a little bit sore from, from this finale. I didn't want to finish. I wanted the series to go on and on. But Jeffrey has really important work to do. It was a pleasure sharing time with him on his book, Scale. But I want to thank our sponsor, Zai, for enabling us to bring you all this extra content. Zai is boldly transforming the future of financial services with a suite of embedded products and services, empowering business to manage multiple payment workflows and move funds with ease. Check out Zai at hellozai.com and I'll see you next week.